You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Tuesday, August 15th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn. And you are riding home with me on one of the saddest, most somber days of my first world existence. No, nobody died. Nobody's sick. Nothing serious like that. No, no. Today is sad because I had to return my most prized possession in this world. My soccer camera. My AI soccer camera. I guess technically it never was mine because I was leasing it. And I know the Bible says our life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. I get it. You know, Jesus is still coming back. I'm still saved. But as far as my quality of life here in the first world, as I drink my... It's not one dollar bottled water. This is store. This is, was this Kroger brand bottled water? No, this is Walt. When did I go to Walmart? This is Walmart brand bottled water. So it's probably like I don't know, thirty-five cents. And I flavored it with Kool-Aid. So let me lament as I drink my clean drinking water in a bottle that's cold and it's flavored with Kool-Aid. The company that I got my soccer camera from stopped offering downloads of the footage. You had to watch it on their web app, which I don't want to do. So they gave me a refund and I returned it. Right here before my soccer season is about to start. So what am I to do? Because all the other soccer cameras are ridiculously expensive. So sad day for me. I'll try not to let it show through on the Christian commute as I make my way home. I have a full show for you today. And listen, I gotta tell you, I am struggling to come up with show topics of relevance and interest. So if this one seems lame to you, turn it off when it gets there. I have a full show. Like I said, I've got a question in the inbox that I think is interesting. I've got the Bible chapter review. But I am scraping the bottom of the barrel for show topics, having a hard time thinking of one. So here it is. This is visible symptoms of an unhealthy church. Visible symptoms of an unhealthy church. And we'll get to that when we get to that. I'm back in the Kia Soul today. Another first world problem. It smells bad because I left my windows down in a storm. So I haven't got that rain smell out of it yet when it gets all in the upholstery. That mildew smell. So hopefully I can get a dry day and leave the windows down and have the 100 degree weather burn it off. The Kia is acting even worse today. It's like the steering wheel just shakes. And I can't drive the van because the van needs an oil change. Maybe, maybe I'll get that this weekend. The question I have in the inbox today, and it is the second to last one that I have. So please, somebody send a question 
about Christian theology and apologetics to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. SethDunn88 at gmail.com. Today's question is about a Christian ethic of work. The Bible chapter review is Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. We are finishing Matthew chapter 23. We're going to move on to Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus is going to talk about the end and things to come, bad things that are going to befall Jerusalem after he's done with these woes to the Jews. So actually, he, he's done with his woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. So now we're going to sum up the woes, if you will, in verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, blessed who comes. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalm 118. He's referring to that there. He's saying, You're not going to see me again until you recognize me as the Messiah. And he is be he is in the midst of being rejected in Jerusalem as the Messiah, despite the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday when people were saying, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. People are fickle, aren't they? Jesus has been sent to them. He is the Messiah. He is God's man if God ever sent a man. He is the God-man. He comes in with all the right things to say and righteousness and what happens? The scribes and the Pharisees want to kill him and they're trying to tear him down and he just goes right after them verbally and he pronounces woes on them and then he laments over Jerusalem as the Jews in Jerusalem continue to be hard-hearted as they were even in Moses' day. And like the prophets who were rejected before him, Jesus is going to be rejected by the Jews who are unwilling to accept him. And with that, we'll end the Bible chapter review. That was kind of short. All right, let's go to the inbox. Oh, I can't read my writing again. This is the girl from Chattanooga. Is it Laura or Lauren? Sorry, Laura. In I think it's Laura. I'm sorry. I didn't write your name down good enough. This is your second question. Thank you, recent question asker, for sending in another question. Here is the question. Is it sinful for a believer to take enjoyment in or be passionate about their work. First of all, let me just nitpick the question. It's sinful for anybody to sin, whether you're a believer or not. If you're a believer, 
you're convicted of your sin and you know you're sinning and you're going to repent of it and feel bad and ask God for forgiveness and make amends if necessary. But no one would ever ask, is it sinful for a believer to commit adultery as if it was not sinful for a non-believer to commit adultery? Sin is sin, no matter who's doing it. So... I know you didn't ask that, but you asked a very pedantic person a question. So is it sinful for a believer to take enjoyment in or be passionate about their work? Doesn't the Bible say, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord when it's talking about work? And I think in that specific case, it's talking about a slave working for his master, so it's not even work that the slave chosen to do. It's not quite analogous to today's economy where we work for an employer, because I'm not a slave where I work. I have to do what my boss says in order to keep my job, but if I didn't do what, I, what she wanted me to do, I could just quit and leave. In fact, I could just not do it for a couple months before they would say, fine, you're fired because you're not doing it. That's called quiet quitting. That's a thing now. And there's so few people in the work pl- workforce that, <laughs> that the quiet quitters stay on because they can't find new ones. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not looking to quiet quit. Why? Because I have a Christian work ethic. It's good to enjoy your work. Whatever you're here to do on this earth... Uh, during your labors, enjoy it. Think about, what is that, Ecclesiastes? There's so much futility in this world that you can at least enjoy your work while you're doing it. And if you're passionate about your work, aren't you going to do a good job? I mean, well, what's, what's the alternative to that? Being in a dead-end job that you can't stand? I'll tell you something, like, I'm generally passionate about my job, and I'm not trying to narcissist the question here, but there are things in my job that I'm not passionate about that I hate and are boring. For example, a part of my job is costing finished goods. I'm the controller of an extrusion factory. Yes, I work in the carpet mill. Yes, that's where my office is. But there's an extrusion mill down the street, which we own too. And I am the controller of that, in addition to my duties of making charts. Okay? And every once in a while, the people down at the yarn mill will say, you know what? We had 88% of this type of resin in our yarn and we're going to change it to 89 and then we're going to change you know something else by one percent and it's going to make the cost a half a penny different and they say here's a list of 10 yarns to update because there's there's you know there's there's 10 colors or five colors of every yarn so get this i'm not the one who went in the computer and made the bomb somebody else does that all i have to do is go on the computer Type in the name of the yarn I want to cost. And then click on the warehouse I want, or the plant I want, 
and then say calculate and the computer does it for me just look at it and see if it seems right and then I say there I'm done that's so easy I hate doing it because it requires no thought and it's repetitive and rote I will never ever be passionate about that could I be passionate about cutting waste and finding ways to make the bomb less expensive while maintaining the quality of the yarn? That seems like something I'd be passionate about, like finding the savings and efficiencies. That part of my job is awful. Now, granted, you know I don't do it for more than 10 minutes every day if I do it at all. But some people have a job, and that's their whole job. And I feel bad for them. And those people with those rote, boring jobs, and some people like jobs like that, I don't, where they don't even have to think, are supposed to do that job as unto the Lord. Now that seems like it would be kind of difficult. But you got to do a good job because your work, listen, your work represents Christ. Everything you do as a Christian represents Christ. And if you're lazy or shiftless and you cut corners, it's a reproach to God, our Father, and Christ, our Savior. So if you're passionate about your work, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. My sticky note fell. So you know the difference between a Christian worker and a non-Christian worker should be shown in things like enthusiasm, even punctuality, attention to quality, how you treat your co-workers, all that should be shown or should show out differently. Now it might not mean that you're the best. There could be pagans who are way better than you at what you do. But how you go about doing it says something about you and your Savior and where you are in this life because whatever you do, do unto the Lord. And why would you not enjoy that or be passionate about that? Now, can your work become an idol? Yes, but lots of things that are good can become a figurative idol in your life. The Bible says to enjoy your children. Like you got a quiver full of children, the children of your your youth. They're great. You take delight in your children, okay? But people can make their children an idol. And where they don't pay attention to their spouse because they're too busy doting on their children and worrying about their children. And they don't do a good job at work because they're too busy worried about doing something with their children. Here's an example. Their children want to play travel baseball. So instead of taking their kids to church on Sunday, they take them to the travel baseball tournament. They, they've made that child and whatever that child wants to do. Think about that. We know these people. We call them little princes, especially the only children. They spend more money placating their child, buying their child toys and and fancy clothes and 10 different pair of shoes and tickets to the amusement park than they do by far of, say, supporting a missionary. And I'm not talking about 
buying your children clothes, food, and shelter. I'm talking about spoiling your children to the detriment of the kingdom. Isn't it good to provide your child a good life and love your child and enjoy your child? Yes, but you're not supposed to put anybody or anything in front of who? In front of God. You don't put your wife in front of God even though you're supposed to love and enjoy your wife. You don't put your kids in front of God even though you're supposed to love and enjoy your kids. And you don't put your work in front of God even though you're supposed to do your work as unto the Lord. So here's the thing. Everything and everyone in your life you relate to and love the way God says to relate to them or love them. We have very clear instructions in Scripture about how we're to love our children and our spouse. And we have very clear instructions in Scripture on about how we're to go about our job. Let's take an example of a righteous man in Scripture who did a good job. Look at Joseph. Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house. That is not the job in life he chose to do for himself amongst the pagan wicked idolaters when his brothers, who were also wicked, sold him into slavery. What did he do? He did a great job in Potiphar's house till he got put in charge. He was then unjustly thrown in prison by a slutty, adulterous woman who he could have just easily slept with. Some rich dude's wife, she's probably good looking. Uh, but no, he wouldn't do that because that would be unrighteous. He got put in jail. He didn't deserve to be there. He was such a model prisoner, because you get jobs in jail, even to this day, that they put him in charge of the jail. And eventually, he's put in charge of Egypt, which is a lot better job than being in charge of jail. Being in charge of the whole company, or whole, whole country, whole kingdom. Joseph stuck out as different. Now, obviously, we're not Joseph. Joseph was specially blessed by the Lord, and the reason for his position in Egypt had something to do with the history of, of Israel. Okay, there's a bigger picture there. There's a bigger lesson there. But he's a good example for us. This is not scripture, of course, but Martin Luther said... Uh, the way to be a good Christian cobbler is not to make shoes with little crosses on them, but to make good shoes. So yes, please enjoy your work. Be passionate about your work, but it should not take you over seven days a week. And by the way, if your work ruins your relationship with your spouse because you don't have any time for her, or your kids. So even though like your your wife and kids can live in a big house that you pay for and have nice cars, but the cat's in the cradle. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle, saddest song ever. What happens? The dad never spends any time playing ball with his boy because he's too busy working, and the kid grows up, and he loses his son and doesn't even know him. Okay? So if you let your work get in the way of loving your kids the way the Bible says to love your kids, 
and loving your wife the way the Bible says to love your wife, then the, your job has got, gotten between you and God. What were we put here to do? We humans. Work. Even before the fall, Adam was put into gar the garden and he worked the garden. He took care of it. We are caretakers on this earth. And our work should contribute to that. Being a caretaker of this earth or having dominion, being productive. My mama, the social studies teacher, says there are three ways to create wealth. Mine it, make it, and grow it. So think of that work that people do. That's hard work. Mine it. That's mining is hard. Growing it. Farming is hard. Thanks a lot, Adam. Because it used to be easy, but now the ground is cursed because of you. Make it. I was in a manufacturing plant today. I wasn't doing the work. I support the work of manufacturing stuff. But that's hard work. And then you think of the service industry, which doesn't really create wealth, but it supports the people who are. Like the waitress at the restaurant, who supports all the workers who are hungry from producing wealth. So there's all kinds of ways to contribute to the economy in this world, to the creation of wealth, which makes the world a better place, and which should glorify God. The end is glorifying God in whatever you do. In fact, the Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Who was the girl yesterday? April, who asked about Reformed theology? There you go. There's some Reformed theology for you in the Westminster Confession. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If your work is glorifying God, it's good to be passionate about it and enjoy it. If your work does not glorify God, uh, then it's bad. Now, your work could by its nature not glorify God, like being a slave trader or a stripper or a, a pornographic actor or actress or, a, I don't know, a slumlord. <laughs> There's plenty of jobs, a sweatshop guy. There's plenty of jobs that are bad that don't glorify God because of the nature of the work being done. But then there could be jobs that are good jobs, quote-unquote good jobs, but you're not glorifying God in it because you're letting your work seven days a week come before God, and you care about you care about more about money and success than you do God. Those are the things you love, not God. Listen, the blessings you get from your work come from God. It's, it's, good to, it's good to work and be rewarded for it. That's a blessing. And you should thank God for that. But it's just about priority. By the way, there's, there's, the, there's the other side of the coin. There's idolatry of work, and then there's idolatry of laziness. Laziness is, laziness is sinful. Who, who made up the seven deadly sins? There's no Bible verse that says these are the seven deadly sins. I think the Catholics made it up. But uh, sloth is one of them. Behold, I passed the vineyard of the sluggard. And his fence was broken down and vines were all grown up everywhere. And I thought, a little rest and destruction comes upon you like a robber. That's me paraphrasing 
Proverbs. Don't know which verse, but you can look it up. You got to keep working. It's easy in the first world to think, man, I went to work five days a week and I'm going to kick back and watch a movie, you know, watch some YouTube on my cell phone, play some games, and, you know, let your house go to ruin. Slothfulness, laziness is sinful. If you got paid for 40 hours of work this week and they really only got 35 out of you, you didn't glorify God in what you did. You didn't do that as unto the Lord. Luckily, I'm on salary, so I'm always getting paid. And I'm as long as I'm getting my work done, I'm okay. But listen, you could be somebody on salary and be like, well, I've done enough. No. Don't just work half the week and say, well, I've done enough. Do something else. So don't be lazy and entitled. You could be a workaholic or you could be lazy and entitled. Both of those are sinful, whether you're a believer or not. Now, let's talk about visible signs of an unhealthy church. And we know... The church is like a body, right? Paul likens it to the body. In fact, we call it the body of Christ. We're talking about a local church. We have people with different gifts. And, you know, somebody's a hand and somebody's a foot. And we're all supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ. And we can't get along without one another. Just like the body needs every part. But if I may take that analogy further, you can look at a body and tell if it's unhealthy or not. There are signs. There's outward signs. Sometimes you could look at somebody who's deathly ill and you can't tell that they're deathly ill. Think about somebody who's in the first stage of cancer and they've got lung cancer and they don't know it yet. They don't even have trouble breathing yet. Or maybe they have a brain tumor and they don't know it yet. Their cognitive function hasn't started to fail. They're walking dead, but you can't tell. But eventually... Sick people will start to show outward signs that they're unhealthy on the inside. They'll start to get skinny. Maybe their teeth fall out. Maybe they turn pale. Maybe they break out in a rash. Think of somebody with AIDS. You ever seen Philadelphia uh, with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington? And Tom Hanks has AIDS and he's a homosexual and he gets fired because he has AIDS so he's, he sues his employer because he, they, he got discriminated against by his disease and the Denzel Washington gives an example of a skin lesion that was related to AIDS and it's all gross looking on the outside so you could have AIDS on the inside nobody can tell but then uh oh you start to get skin lesions something's wrong with you what is it that, that's how doctors diagnose things sometimes you can go to the doctor and, and you can have some outward symptom and by the symptoms, they identify your disease. So you could go into, uh, you could just go look at a church. Just look at the people in a church. And when I say look at the church, that's what I'm talking about. Look at the church, the actual people, not the building. The people who are gathered together, the ecclesia, that's the church. And you don't need to go see the church bylaws they can have horrible bylaws that allow for women preachers and they give 20% to the cooperative program. I mean, they could have horrible, but they could be modalists in the bylaws, in the statement of faith. 
But you can go sometimes without looking at the statement of faith or the bylaws and even without talking to anybody and you can see visible signs of an unhealthy church. Now, if you go sit and listen to the preaching, it could be bad and that would be a sign of an unhealthy church, obviously, but the preaching could be good, could be biblical, could be on point. But it doesn't mean that the church is healthy. What can you see just by looking around that the church is unhealthy? The first thing I notice is how people dress. Okay, And this is sort of what brought this up because I wore shorts to church on Sunday. Like, I, you got to understand, I'm somebody, I wake up on Sunday, and I'm like, nope, I will wake up early, and I'm not going to iron them, but I got one of those steam dryers. I'll get enough wrinkles out of my my khakis or my slacks. I'm like, you got to wear slacks and a collared shirt to church. If you're a man, that's the bare minimum. That's not in the Bible, that's just how I feel, okay? So the reason I wore shorts to church Sunday is because... My kids had a soccer game at 11.50, and we went to the early service at 9.15, which got out at 10.30, and the match was 30 minutes away, and you're supposed to be there 30 minutes early. Do the math. I didn't think we'd have time to go home and change, so my kids wore their soccer uniform, and I wore um, my the stuff I wear when I'm coaching. Now, I wasn't coaching. This is a team that I don't coach, but I still had my coaching stuff on to all be, official, be official-like and represent our club. So, out of the ordinary for me. And by the way, I'm not saying like if you find men wearing shorts in church, that's bad. You got those guys wearing shorts are unholy. Ain't no Bible verse that says that. But I guarantee you this: I ain't wearing, I'm not wearing shorts to church unless I got I got somewhere to go right after. That's going to be 100 degrees. But I was uncomfortable because that's not... I don't feel comfortable in church dressed down. I just don't. And I know nobody cares. Nobody's looking at me and saying... Nobody cares. Remember in uh, Jurassic Park and Dennis Nedry? He's like, hey, look, I got dinosaur embryos. And the the guy's like, shh. He's like, see, nobody cares. Nobody cares. So I'm not saying there's a dress code that there's a certain minimum of people aren't wearing suits that the ladies aren't wearing dresses. That's not what I'm getting at. But you could did people put thought into their attire in that they want to look nice out of out of respect for being in the Lord's house and they also want to be modest. And men can be immodest, but I think men being visual creatures and women being the things they're looking at. Sorry, that's the, the things. Women aren't things, you misogynist pig. Somebody's saying that. Of course women aren't things. They're people created in the image of God. That's what the Bible says. But women are the object, we'll say, of the visual gaze of the male, the male gaze as it's called. You can tell the health of a church just by looking 
first and foremost by how the women dress. How much skin are they showing? Are their clothes particularly tight? I realize it's 2023. People are going to wear shorts to church. Do they have to be that short? How much shoulder are they showing? They're wearing blue jeans. Okay, how tight are the blue jeans? They're wearing a skirt. How short is the skirt? Immodestly dressed women, I would say, is the number one visual symptom of an unhealthy church. So you can look at a church sitting in the service and there's, there's going to be an immodestly dressed woman anywhere you go. Okay, and Especially at the bigger your church gets where people kind of get lost in the mix that there's people coming there and you know they're not what we call plugged in. Maybe they haven't even, they're not even members of the church but they come. Nobody's going to tell them to go away. Okay, If some woman who's not a Christian comes to your church or maybe she got saved yesterday and she's dressed immodestly and she thinks she looks good. Okay, let's have a little understanding of that woman. Hopefully some older woman's going to pull her aside in a non-catty way and explain to her the situation. But if you go to a church and you can tell it's prevalent and it's regular there that the women are dressed immodestly dare I say voluptuously can you be dressed voluptuously? A woman can be voluptuous, but I don't know if you can be dressed voluptuously. I'm going to say that you can. You can be a voluptuous woman and and be modestly dressed. What's, what's that country song? She can't help it if she's made that way. Lord have mercy, baby's got her blue jeans on. Ah, uh, that's who is that? Is that George Strait? I don't know. Conway Twitty sings tight-fitting jeans. Darling, there's a lady in these tight-fitting jeans. I feel like every song Conway Twitty sings is dirty. I don't know. Louisiana woman, Mississippi man, we get together anytime we can. Mississippi River can't keep us apart. Too much love in this Louisiana heart. Too much love in this Mississippi heart. That's not dirty. Notice, I did do the Loretta Lynn part and the Conway Twitty part differently. That's a duet. I hope you appreciate. I hope you appreciated that. Anyway, we're, we're, I, yeah, I'm talking about Conway Twitty because I'm talking about immodestly dressed women. Now I'm just now I'm just sitting here in the midst of autism, trying not to blurt out Conway Twitty songs and, and stay on stay on topic. I can do it. Okay. Go away, Conway Twitty songs. Because here's, here's the thing. The first thing you know, especially if you see a young woman dressed immodestly, is that her dad has not told her different. Now, if you got a woman in church who's 25, 30 years old and she's not married, they got this... <laughs> oh, the things I hear myself say later. If you got <laughs> if you got a 25 or 30 year old woman who's not married, 
There's no man to tell her how to dress. <laughs> that sounds so terrible, but bear with me. Listen, modest dress is a part of spirituality. Bear with me, okay? Hey, this is, uh, April, this is one of those things that it's not Reformed theology, but the kind of thing you'd notice if you went to Reformed church. Modest dress is a part of spirituality. The Bible uh, covers it. It talks about how a woman should adorn herself. It covers that in Timothy. How should should a woman adorn herself in the church? All right? And the man is the spiritual head of the wife. All right? That's basic biblical anthropology, complementary, complementarian theology, or if we call it biblical theology. There's no, I mean, there's an alternative, but it's wrong, okay? So if your wife, father, I'm sorry, husband, if your wife, husband, or your daughter, father, is walking around church, or the street for that matter, immodestly dressed, that's on you. You should have said something. And you know that, Statements like that don't fly with modern-day sensibilities about men and women. I'm just trying to be biblical here, y'all. So, the immodestly dressed women... Now, we'll cover why is a woman 25 and 30 years old and not married. That's, one, that's another thing. Um, the immodestly dressed women... That means that the men who are supposed to be leading the household spiritually are not doing it. They're not doing it with their wives, and they're not doing it with their daughters. As for the unmarried women, the to use the antiquated term, as the spinsters go, um, maybe some older women should be pulling them aside if their mothers aren't there and saying, what the heck. And that's another thing. You can look around. Do you see... Family sitting together. Husband, wife, kids. Now, we know the youth like to sit in a little group together. I've talked about that before a long time ago on the Christian commute. Like, I don't know when that started, the youth group sitting together. The youth group is usually the most immodestly dressed group. Now, we know young people are going to be immodestly dressed. But do you know why? Because I think a lot of those young people are there, a part of the church, but their parents aren't. If you see women sitting there with their kids and a man is nowhere to be found. Now, it could be that their husband is valet parking cars or he's a part of the security team or one of the blue million uh, volunteer positions uh, given to men. And that's the week he's serving and doing that. But basically, if you consistently see females and kids with no man around, that's a visual problem. It means there's no spiritual headship in the home. Now, God bless the women for being there. It does, it's not like some woman should say, well, my husband won't take me to church, or I'm divorced, or I'm a single mom, so I'm just not going to go. No, you should. And I, There's a lot of people out there who never get saved and never learn Bible stories if their mom didn't take them to church because their dad didn't do it. But that's a problem. A lack of male leadership is a lack of male headship. And you could have a church, and the website has all the elders, and they're all dudes. This is how it's supposed to be. But then you look at 
How are the elders and deacons' daughters dressed? You don't know how they act. You don't know if they're at a keg party on Friday night. You don't know if they're like John Lithgow's daughter in Footloose. Crazy. You don't know that. You don't know them, but you can tell by looking. Hey, listen, and you could have a girl dressed uh, head to toe in uh, an Amish-looking dress and wearing one of those little little uh, Laura Ingalls head covers. And she could be as, as wild as it gets. But you start telling a lot about how things look. Sort of like it sort of gets that way with the music. If you're if you're listening to the feminine music, I heard one the other day by Maverick City slash Elevation. I've never felt more love than I do right now. I don't need a trophy to make you proud. I'm not gonna sing that. I'm a grown man. I don't need a hug from God. Golly. I mean, like, that's a song for, like, people with daddy issues, okay? My God, I realize people, I don't have daddy issues. Good grief. Ugh. But, you know, this stuff, like, I'm running to your, I'm not running to anybody's arms. Nothing compares to your embrace. Now, I know that could be, like, the prodigal son but does he run to the dad or the dad run to him? I don't remember, but it's just like, I'm not singing, I don't, I'm not singing about being embraced by the father. I know, I know theologically that God's my father. And my dad hugs me all the time. That I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, think about this. Whoever writes a song about hugging their daddy. Now there's songs out there that'll get you all choked up about relationships with your dad. I just sung one. The Harry Chapin song, but and there's also when Daddy let me drive, you know, like the, that was is that Tim McGraw? No, it's Alan Jackson. Grown up now, three daughters of our own, and they drive out our old Jeep in a pasture near our home. Young girl, two hands on the wheel, can't can't replace, can't replace the way it made me feel. And he'd say, steer it left, girl, now steer it right. Straighten up now, you're doing all right. You know, when daddy let me drive, oh wow, you know, that's your dad. You grow up and you want to be like your dad and you want to, you want to drive the boat, you want to drive the car. You know, you want to, you're chopping wood outside, you want to use the axe, you want to do the mower. And finally your dad lets you do it. He lets you shoot the shotgun at the bird. He lets you take the first shot. It's like growing up and your dad's teaching you things. There are country songs about that. But who in the world is writing songs about, my, I want to hug my daddy. And it's just like, not me. Oh. So the worship is feminized. You got feminized outfits. I mean, I, of course, women can only wear feminized outfits. I said that poorly. You have sexualized feminine outfits. And... Here, look around. This is the thing, because we're not talking about hearing. We're talking about looking. Do this. Look around the church the next time they sing one of these songs and just look who's singing. 
The men on staff have to sing. That's probably in their contract to hold their hands up. But what you'll notice when they sing these feminized worship songs is that women are singing them and men are just kind of standing there because they don't want to sing it. Now you have men not worshiping. Men are supposed to be the leaders. Men are supposed to be the example. You sing all these songs about God being your daddy, but then where are the daddies? Where are the daddies saying, wear a longer dress, wear looser pants? Why are you wearing a shirt that doesn't cover your shoulders? Why are you dressed like you're going to a cowboy dance bar? This is church. Do you know how hard it is? To, first of all, I'm just judgmental. Do you know how hard it is to have Asperger's syndrome and you're sitting in church and some woman walks by dressed like she belongs at a cowboy dance bar to not say, why aren't you at the cowboy dance bar? This is church. It's difficult, so I just do it on this podcast, passive-aggressively. Who am I talking about? Is it a real person, or is he talking in general? You could have the most biblically preached messages in the world, but if people aren't living it out, the church is unhealthy. What's the body look like? The things I've mentioned today are signs of weak spiritual headship. And you can preach all the sermons you want about David and Absalom and David not paying enough attention to his kids and about David not paying enough attention to his army and being a leader and sleeping with somebody else's wife and all the family drama that caused. You can preach all those sermons you want, but until somebody takes aside the people who were immodestly dressed or somebody takes aside the, the dad and says, why does your family look like that? You're responsible. Why is your family not showing up? Why are you not? How about this? Why is your family showing up but you're not? Why are your wife and kids dressed like that? I'm telling you what, you can't look at somebody and tell how much they gave or didn't give. Give. You don't know. You have no they could pass the plate on by. Maybe they're giving online. You don't know. You can look at them and you don't know what they did on Friday and Saturday night. They could have been at the gospel singing party, singing hymns with a bunch of old people at the nursing home. Or they could have been out partying. Getting drunk, sleeping around. You don't know. But you can look at somebody and say, they're immodest. This doesn't line up with the Bible. You can look. You can just look at how the room is set up. I know I've beaten fog machines and lights up to death, but you can look and see fog machines and lights. When I see fog machines and lights, I don't care a word what the preacher says because it's empty. He could get up there 
and preach John MacArthur, Charles Sermons, uh, uh, Charles, Charles Spurgeon, John MacArthur sermons on steroids. In, in a Jerry Vines suit with all the histrionics. And it would mean nothing to me because I wouldn't think he believed it. I wouldn't think he meant it. It's just words. When a preacher gets up and says, we're going to an exegetical series on Jude. And there's a bunch of spotlights and smoke machines and, and, and daddy hunt running to your arms, Maverick City music. But I don't believe it for a minute. I mean, I believe the Bible, but I don't believe that he believes it. It's a show. The, the, the axiom is true. I'm going to say the proverb is true. Do you know there's proverbs that aren't in the book of Proverbs, just so you understand? There's proverbs in every culture. And our proverb is true. A picture's worth a thousand words. So, preacher, you can get up there and, and preach 999 words, but there's a picture that's worth a thousand. And you know what? If, if you say things like this, You'll get accused of being a legalist. Who are you to judge another man's servant? You know, you think you're better than other people for how you're dressed. Or who are you to say how somebody else is dressed? Who are you to say how a man's supposed to tell a woman what to do? Who are you? Who are you? This is our music. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Hey, the best umpires call them like they see them. Shouldn't we Christians do the same? Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow with a more well-thought-out topic that's more interesting. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about Thanks being saved. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.